Hey, welcome back to another episode of Film Bros Anonymous. I am Cody Owen, sitting down with Peter DiNicola, and we have a special guest with us today, virtually joining us from the Pacific Northwest. We have Jamie, uh, who I went to college with and was one of the first people I remember telling me about like really enjoying watching foreign language films. And you actually win in our ill-fated first attempt at recording this podcast. You gave a really smart quote. Uh, I know, I know. Part, you know. Yeah, you should, uh, you should give that quote now. Uh, I know, I'm trying to find it. Okay, once you overcome the one inch tall, I thought it was centimeters. I was trying to be international. One inch tall barrier of subtitles. You will be introduced to so many more amazing films. And I really butchered it the first time. So I'm kind of glad we got to redo it. But yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll edit out my attempt at teeing you up to read a quote that somehow took 300 words. That'll be flawless. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to sound great in the edit. But yeah, so when when we were starting a film podcast, you were on my short list of people that I was like, ooh, I bet Jamie would come on and talk with us about something. So we are diving into the French Dispatch to round out our Pulp Fiction Month, which is uh, maybe... Some would think like an odd choice to pair a Wes Anderson film and a Quentin Tarantino film. They have very opposite styles. Um, but in this case, it's a, you know, it's a trilogy of stories. So we thought that it, it fit the, the narrative construction of Pulp Fiction pretty well. Yes, we went with the, the anthology theme. A couple of our movies had that. And we also went with a sort of French theme. Not mm -hmm. only did we watch uh, Shoot the Piano Player, a French movie, um, we also have the famous Royale with Cheese line in Pulp Fiction, as French as it gets. <laughs> and speaking of as French as it gets, we have The French Dispatch, which stars a couple of French people. Not too many. Not a lot of French actually <laughs> spoken for a movie set in a small town in France, but you know what? It's Wes Anderson. It's a little magical. Uh, it's a little, a little out there and we can forgive him for that. Yeah. Before we dive in to a recap of the movie, if it's been a hot second since you watched French Dispatch, I also wanted to go ahead and get Jamie's top four on Letterboxd for us. <laughs> okay. Let me pull this up. Moment of truth. The best, the best way to get to know a person. Should I start? Uh, I'm going to start left to right. I think that's the way to do it. Um, so my number one, I would have to say, is Mulholland Drive. Um, that was actually like one of my first Criterion Collection films that I had bought. And I actually like bought it as a blind buy just because I was, I don't know, I got it as a recommendation from this Barnes & Noble clerk who was like, oh, you like Twin Peaks? You should watch Mulholland Drive. Like pretty obvious, right? Um, so I watched that and I don't know, I'm sure you guys have seen it. And if not, I won't spoil anything. But still, it was, I had some really like shocking moments and also dream logic, which I love. And just, yeah, I I can't really say anymore without spoiling it. That but, was a great dive in for your yes. first criterion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was like living alone in like Livermore, California for some internship that summer. And it was a whole summer of film basic, basically where I was exploring like this whole criterion thing for the first time. And that was like my first real introduction to it. And it was, yeah, very... Very nice. My second film that I would say is Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. So like I would have that first. I really do love it, but I think it's a hard one for me to sell to other people because I feel like you really can't understand it if you haven't seen the show. And I would say even the show itself is like quite an investment and maybe to most people it doesn't have a big payoff. So yeah, I love it. I think it's got a lot of 
meaning to it, a lot of different layers and people interpret it differently. Even I watched like a live showing of it with Cheryl Lee um, in the audience and she came out after and kind of spoke about her interpretation of it. And it was completely different from what I would have thought. And she was like, you know, the star of the film. So yeah, I think it has a lot of different readings. So I love that film. My third that I have is Before Sunset. Have you all seen that, the trilogy? I have, I have uh, full Full disclosure, I am also a Lynch newbie and have not seen any of Twin Peaks oh my God. Or, <laughs> or Mulholland Drive. I'm currently rewatching Twin Peaks, the show. The oh moment. my God, okay. I've <laughs> seen it. it. Yeah. It's, He's got it in another so tab. <laughs> yeah. I have it open right now. All right. Well, yeah. Bring me on for Lynch month or whatever. We can totally do all of his oh films. Yeah. So I'm actually holding off on watching one. It's Inland Empire. And I have it on, like, I got it as a criterion, mm -hmm. like, this last March when it was released. But I'm, like, saving it because it's, like, that's kind of, like, the last of his filmography that I can, like, watch. And I don't know. I'm waiting for, for the right time. Yes, oh, it's wrapped. <laughs> yeah, I have I bought it. It's sitting there. Waiting. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I feel like that one. Like, I would have to rank his from like most realistic to like most dreamlike. I'm pretty sure that's like the most psychotic dreamlike one. Nice. So yeah, I would save that one maybe till you've watched some other ones first. It's, or, yeah. I mean, I, I love all David Lynch's stuff. Peter properly prepped me for when I sat down to watch Eraserhead, and he was like. This movie will be like you are watching somebody else's dream. Yeah. And that was the perfect way to go into that movie. Yeah. Uh, and I had a lot of fun with it. Where I think that totally unprepared, I would have had much less fun. Yeah. And I think the more times I watch it, the more comedic it is to me. Like last time oh, I saw it, it was actually at a theater and I kept laughing. We could turn so, this whole podcast into a David Lynch discussion. <laughs> I would not mind. So to avoid doing that on the French Dispatch episode, I will go <laughs> into the third one, which actually, um, oh my gosh, it, I'm pretty sure it takes place in France. Yeah. So that goes with the theme, but that's part of Linklater's uh, Before Trilogy, the second one. And yeah, each film takes place with like the same characters nine years apart in real time because Linklater likes to play with time. And I think that second one is, has the most like passion and hopefulness in it. And I think it's really great. Of course, the first one is like necessary for viewing and I really enjoy both the first and third ones. The third one is kind of the most bittersweet, like will bring you back down to reality. But the second one is like a total high, you know, that sunset glow over everything where, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. And then finally is The Graduate, which to me is very comedic. Uh, also, it, it's funny that something from the 60s with like the same Simon and Garfunkel song over and over again is still so good and hits hard. But yeah, have you guys seen that one, I hope? I've seen The Graduate, yeah, I do. I, I love The Graduate. I have Although not comedic seen The Graduate. <laughs> oh my God, wow. I, 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 don't know, I don't know how comedic I could call The Graduate. It is Really? I mean... It's a rather somber, if the ending feels rather somber. The ending is somber. And wow, Cody, is this like a first where like someone's top four, you have not seen them? You know, so I feel like just uncultured no. from your top four, because I like I have, no. I have a link later in my top four and it is the, you know, super classy, super intellectual, everybody wants some. I haven't seen I, it, so. Oh my God. It, 
I have not laughed that hard at many movies mm. just all the way through. I, I don't know what it is because like I didn't play sports. It's like about mm. guys who play college baseball, but it just like, it just captures the spirit of dumb guys in college <laughs> running around being dumb. And now that I'm a little bit older, there's one character that without like giving anything away is older than other people. And his desire to like be back in college and like recapture mm. that feeling is something I relate to now that I'm like coming to the end of my twenties. Yeah. So anyway, so you have like cool stuff in your top four and yeah, smart and people movies. And I have uh, Inglorious Bastards and everybody. No, wants that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. No, I love Inglorious Bastards. And I feel like I don't have very many subtitles for having dropped that subtitle quote earlier, but yeah. <laughs> They're, they're deeper in the top 10. Oh, I've got yeah, two yeah. Sub, I've got two subtitle ones. In my really? Oh, okay. Yeah, he's the uh, most cultured. <laughs> and they both have a seven in the title. Mm, okay. You can take is, a guess on what they are. Is one of them by Fellini? No. Okay, no, okay. no, Fellini is a good guess. One of them, I'll give you a hint. It's by... Oh, um, Bergman, Seventh yep. Seal. Okay. Yes, mm. yes, correct. Uh, and the other one with the seven in the title? Seven, seven with Brad Pitt. <laughs> oh, yeah, Seven Samurai. Yeah, yeah. Seven Samurai, yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Seven Peter, Peter exclusively watches the, the <laughs> Japanese dub of uh, Seven starring Brad Pitt <laughs> so that it yeah. has subtitles. That would be yeah, amazing. Um, well, yeah, so let's jump in on the French Dispatch. Um, so I did see, I in our original recording, I underestimated my rating. I gave it three stars when I saw it in theaters but yeah i think it might be a little unfair because that feels a little more like i try to keep my rating system more on what they were trying to do and how successfully it was done and i feel like i rated it more on i was expecting to have more fun in a wes anderson movie my letterbox has no ratings i don't think i basically only mm. will like log if i've watched a film and then if it like really hit hard then i will give it a like and that's sort of my scale because i feel like if okay. i rate something it like will pigeonhole me into thinking that and then I can never like revisit it and change it. It feels like, no, I thought that at the time, so I can't change it. I don't know why I feel this way, but that's that's my philosophy on it. But I would still like in the whole, you know, ranking of other Wes Anderson films, like I saw Asteroid City and I'm not sure if you guys saw it like when yeah. it came out this summer. I feel like Asteroid City was much more successful with that vibe than uh, French Dispatch was. And I like the French Dispatch, I, but I would go with maybe what Cody said, more of like an average, like, yeah, it was like a good film. I thought about it a little bit, maybe for like, you know, a, a little bit after the movie, but like, mm -hmm. usually when a movie hits really hard, I'm thinking about it until like the next three days. And it's like when my mind is sort of like turned off from work or something, it just like goes to thinking about like the story. And I really didn't have that happen with French Dispatch like I did um, with Asteroid City. Yeah, I think on a, a first viewing, I would definitely agree in that Asteroid City really captured me. And there's just so many moments that even now, and I'm a couple of months removed from watching Asteroid City, that just stand out so vividly to me. And not to give any spoilers, but there's a very obvious sort of break from the action, I'll say, in Asteroid City that, and a, and a very intense conversation slash monologue that sticks with me even now. A French Dispatch felt 
like I, and I think I got more out of French Dispatch the second time I watched it, but it really felt like Wes Anderson was taking a chance to play with a lot of different things and see what stuck. On this watch of French Dispatch, I kind of noticed he did a lot more with sort of the st- he did a lot of different things with style that he doesn't normally do. And anyone who's seen a Wes Anderson movie understands Wes Anderson's style is very prevalent, prevalent in everything he does. But he played a bit with animation in a way he hasn't before. He played just to an extreme extent with his miniatures. I, I think it stood out to me how much miniatures stood out as sets in this one versus something like Asteroid City, where they were a little more restrained. This one seemed to be real front and center. He also played around with his use of color in a different way or lack of. A color. Uh, this one, I mean, French Dispatch is primarily black and white with very infrequent splashes of color. And I, I really appreciated all of that, all of those aspects of it for sure. Now, in terms of the story, I can, I can certainly understand where you're both coming from. But I think, I think I came to appreciate a little more that there's this sort of artistic element to every story we get. And not to go on and ramble for the entire length of it, but each of the stories focuses on sort of a different genre of art. We have, we have one focused on paint, we have one focused on writing, and one that's focused, well, kind of on food, partly on a police <laughs> that varies. But I, I found it sort of as like a celebration of the creative spirit. And in that aspect, I really did enjoy it on the second watch through. I feel like it, my enjoyment suffers in something that was very intentional and like, it was just a direction that I, I feel like I would have been on board for, but I don't feel like it worked for me very much. The like structuring it like an issue of the magazine. I have never sat down and read a magazine cover to cover. (laughs) Like it's usually, oh yeah, I'm interested in the cover story and then I'll read that. And then I might see like, oh, there's this other story and I come back to it later. And so I feel like, you know, when you consume a magazine in that way, in like little chunks, you have time to process the individual stories between sections. And this is like, it is one narrative that he's working through, but it, the little chunks, you don't have time to like think about them and process them. It feels like a movie that really, really wants you to watch it like six times. And I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And But isn't his style normally like in chapters? Like I'm trying to remember like Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think had like sort of different chapters as you're going through the movie and it would introduce something. But like you're saying, Cody, it was always... Uh, in those cases, like continuous, you know, you're going through the entire story, it's broken up. And I think in all or most of his films, he has this sort of storytelling device that kind of gives the audience like a pause and like, oh, this is where we are in the movie. We're about to do this. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, the magazine is like these giant chunks of something. And then it's like very abruptly different for the next, you know, third of the film. So yeah, I see where you're coming with that. Yeah. And Peter was saying, I don't remember if we were recording, but like reading the Letterboxd reviews where there are a bunch that are just like, I don't, I think I'm too stupid to enjoy this movie. Because I was like, visually, it is so compelling. It it feels like, you know, it's very Wes Anderson. I'm, I'm here for the aesthetic. And I was just like, yeah, I don't know anything about the 
Paris student uprisings of <laughs> May 1968. Like I went and read a bunch of reviews today to try to like crystallize my thoughts on it. And I came away with like, well, yeah, I'm not like a massive New Yorker fanboy. So I don't feel like this movie is for me. I, I don't know if I would say that you really need to be. I mean, obviously that's like the influence. You get that in the end credits. But I really think that's just sort of Wes Anderson taking his style and expanding on it and at the same time sort of celebrating his almost his ability to do it, you know? It's, yeah. Because, I, 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 you know, the student uprising thing, it's it's very much a satire. Like, I think the whole point of the student uprising is that boys can go into the, the girls' dorms, <laughs> you know, fighting for that freedom. It's everything about this, like, this fictional, you have the, the two locations, which I, I found this very funny as you have a, like, what is it? A Liberty, Kansas is the the apparent art capital of the United States in this <laughs> this world. Uh, and then you have this small, really described as shitty town in, in France where the choir boys go and beat up old men after dark. <laughs> and so it's, I don't know how important any of that is. And it's, it just feels like, you know, Wes Anderson really wanted to be able to play around with what he could do. And I appreciate that. Yeah, should we go over kind of like what the plot was as a whole and yeah. maybe break down? Yeah, yeah. More of the yeah, let's, let's like Jamie's like, down. hey, can I take over hosting this podcast? No, for a no. You guys don't seem like you know where you're <laughs> no, going. No, not true. I'm just like trying to think like, yeah, okay. Right, like, yeah, let's, let's break it down. There's the three main stories. There's three main stories. There's a, a prequel, a, a sort of setup, and then a uh, epilogue as well. So the prequel, the movie begins with the the death of the the editor of this magazine, and this his story kind of sets the tone for how I took the rest of it, where he's this character that has expatriated to France, and he was supposed to write a temporary column, and ended up staying and cultivating the best talent around him, and maybe that's it's because I personally like connect with that idea that it's just so easy to fall in love with this, this something completely different and unique. And it's, it's that love that sort of brings in this, this creative spirit around him that, that fosters this environment. He himself is not a creative man, but he knows how to gather this talent. He knows how to foster it and grow it. And that's why that kind of set the tone for me of what I went into each of the other stories expecting yeah. or seeing. What did you think of his character? Because he was kind of oxymoronic in the way that he, yeah, like you're saying, is cultivating this talent, you know, and the sort of third story um, basically rescues this writer from sort of whatever trouble he had gotten himself into by offering him a position at this magazine. But then at the same time, he's like, no crying and is very stoic and is uh, kind of rude. And I'm not sure that I would want to work for him or that he would cultivate my creativity in a way. Um, so I don't know. I have I have mixed feelings on on him. I mean, not as a character, but just like if I really like him or not. But yeah, I think, yeah, <laughs> he was a little I feel like he's a he's a caricature yeah. of the the editor as like the writer's worst enemy and best friend. Mm -hmm. Where, like, he brings out the best in you, but also he forces you to kill your darlings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he's he's very much, he's very much described as, you know, to everybody else besides the writers, he's a complete asshole. 
Yeah. And, but, you know, he does make a point. Uh, there's a point where Elizabeth Moff says, we need to cut a story because one is too, you know, there's too many. We, we cannot afford it. And he's like, we're not cutting any stories. Find more paper. He just True. seems like an individual who's so focused on the idea of, of creating art and not so much himself creating art, but having, you know, making this environment where others can create art. Because I think to the creative elements around him, he's, he's a great guy. That's what it seemed like mm -hmm. to me. Like he's, he's very encouraging to his writers. He, he tells them, you know, don't cut this. This is the best part. Yeah. But it's like, he's annoyed by the rest of the process. Yeah. By the, by the bureaucracy and the actual business side of things. So, which is why he left Kansas and went to France in the first place was to like, <laughs> he gets suckered into running his dad's business from afar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it opens up with his death, which I do think is, is relevant in a way. His death signifies the death of the magazine. He's very specifically stated that in his will. And, I think, and this might be me talking completely out of my ass, <laughs> but I think the idea is that there's just these these moments and these individuals that have the capacity to, you know, create beauty around them. They may not necessarily be the creators themselves, but they have the capacity to, either by accident or on purpose, foster this environment where amazing things can happen. And once they're gone, once they've left that environment, once they've passed on it's done there's no there's there's nothing left and you know everyone scatters to the winds i think I, I think you see that a lot in you know various film companies you know there's moments where like miramax was putting out just hit after hit on a home video or whatnot you know just uh, the, the sex lies of videotape era peter just it used to be in my top four okay go on yeah. <laughs> great great movie Peter but, just mourns the loss of creative magnet no, Harvey no, no, Weinstein. No, no. I wasn't gonna. <laughs> I was like, let's just not say that, please. Maybe not uh, individuals, Cody. Not doesn't necessarily mean it's a, that particular individual. You messed me up. Now I don't know where. I <laughs> You're like, I had something smart to say, and Cody ruined it. Cody ruined it. It's pretty typical. But, That's how the podcast goes. <laughs> but no, just the idea that. I think Wes Anderson in this case is is sort of thinking about his his creative moment. He's and sort of that's that's his fun of using this film to explore all his different creative ideas in ways he doesn't normally do, or in like almost to a heightened way. I've seen people say that this is the most this movie is like too Wes Anderson, you know. <laughs> There's, there's a letterbox review that says he Wes Anderson too close to the sun. And I think, <laughs> I think that's the point. I think that's the point of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. we okay, all so getting, Wes Anderson too close to the sun. Getting back to our, our recap of the, the movie. So we've got the three main stories. Um, and someone remind me what the first main story was. Uh, the first one was the... The prisoner, the painter. In the yes, yes. Okay, so the painter is probably my favorite one. I was going to um, say, yeah. And then I I really enjoy that setup. And then we've got Zeffirelli, Zeffirelli's the second one. Yes. That's Timothy Chalamet yeah. with having his hair looking as weird as possible. And, uh, and then the final one is Jeffrey Wright as the 
he's writing about the the Japanese chef who works for the police yes. department. Yes, he's vaguely writing about the chef while also a huge crime drama happens around him. <laughs> yeah, and then we have like inserted in there the like the mini travelogue from Owen Wilson's character. I I who, really like the travelogue. Me too. That like clip that out and that that would be like top tier Wes Anderson for me. Just like some <laughs> dumb American cruising around. I guess he's not supposed to be American, but Owen Wilson cruising around France, riding his bicycle into things is a movie I would watch. I'm talking about the uh, the pimps and prostitutes in the small town of France. <laughs> the the altar boys <laughs> drunk on the blood of Christ, <laughs> beating uh, yeah. people in the streets. Great description. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that he was showing the seedy underbelly of a city. And I think it really like, um, kind of off mic, we were talking about what it's like to live like in another country in a sort of expat situation. And I think it, it like when you know, sort of the non touristy parts, and when that is what you want to share, it shows that you really love the city and want to be part of it. And that like, he really understood the assignment, basically. Um, so I do like that. And yeah, like you're saying, like it could be its own Wes Anderson film itself. I think all of these parts, even the smallest travelogue part could have been expanded into a giant film. So to be compressed, like I understand why it feels so like jarring to switch between them. But yeah, I think they got a lot of story across even in the short little 20 minute thing. One, yeah, one thing I wanted to add though was like I was streaming it this time on my rewatch and HBO or whatever, sorry, Max was saying. Yeah, call was, him by his name. <laughs> so I was watching it and like I paused it for something, I don't know, and then I had to come back to it and it was like at 20 minutes. And then every time I would kind of like do details, it would still show at like 20 minutes. I'm like, oh my God, have I like seen anything in this movie? I still have like <laughs> an hour and 40 minutes left. Like, I don't know how long, but yeah, it was just like the app, but it made it feel like it was dragging on like a little bit. The never ending Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and um, I, I, part of how I judge a movie is how many times did I look at my watch? Mm. How many times did I, you know, pause it to see how long was left? <laughs> and I, for this movie, I will say I didn't do it a lot. For, you know, giving it only three stars, I feel like, you know, maybe I should have looked at my watch five or six times or something, and I don't feel like I was. I went on to watch a whole other movie, so I was clearly it's, not, uh, like, it, it's downtrodden so by it. It's so engrossing. I mean, mm -hmm. like yeah. any Wes mm -hmm. Anderson movie, it just, it's it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, it was amazing because Wes Anderson didn't use a lot of color in this movie. And normally yeah. like, that's what you think of with Wes Anderson is that vibrant, rich popping color. And this mm -hmm. one did so much with so little in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. Kinsey uh, walked into the room and I hadn't told her what I was going to be watching, but she walked in and she was like, Oh, you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. Like, because it just, oh. his style is so, distinctive that yeah. you can just like walk in for a second, see any shot and know who you're watching, which is, you know, really cool. This, this, this was the entire movie in four by three. Ooh, I literally just watched it and I don't remember. I feel like there were some changes. There were a lot of, like he was kind of using the camera as its its own character. Like sometimes he's like random. I mean, I don't know about the aspect ratio, but like these sort of zooms to like exacerbate oh, some yeah. joke. I love, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I think like at a moment, you know, when the, speaking of the first story, when the, the painter's masterpiece is finally revealed, it definitely isn't in four by three. I think it goes widescreen then. Mm -hmm. And that, that vibrant 
shift to color, which is just so wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot. I think a lot of it was informed by three. I'm trying to think of if all the, the like, the color segments with the magazine, the framing elements were in four by three or not. But I'm not entirely sure. A little off topic, but I love the very beginning of the movie where the waiter is going up the steps mm-hmm. and <laughs> the, the the series of events. Such a great opening. Yeah, and like in the along with that, with the first story, um, when it would shift between you know the sort of prisoner and then going to Berenson's lecture in Kansas, mm-hmm. and you're sort of trying to piece together like, wait, what does Kansas have to do? Like, I know we had yeah. the magazine is in Kansas, but why is this also in Kansas? Somehow, some way, this yeah artist gets or sorry, this art collector um, and her sort of protege helper. I don't know what Berenson is at that point basically is able to uh, get connected to the prisoner and the art that he's been making um, as part of mm, his interaction with this guard who's his muse and also kind of his dom. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I think uh, there were a lot of interesting cuts between just like, wow, you're really engrossed in like this art that's being created and their story. And then it just cuts to like her and her like very crazy accent um, giving that lecture. And I don't know if it was 70s or what, but yeah, it had a really interesting vibe change. (laughs) Yeah. And I think to what Peter was saying earlier, like looking at the movie through the lens of like creative people trying to produce and the, the interactions they have with like the money people or the editors who can't do what they're doing. I loved the malicious compliance Mm-hmm. Uh, like, okay, <laughs> you want me to do more art? I've done a fresco. Like the the only piece of art that you can't remove. That and was, then that such a great moment. The say, the ultimate say fresco. The ultimate thwarting of it, where like, well, there's actually no obstacle to, uh, you know, these wealthy art collectors will just remove the walls of the prison and take them to Kansas. Like the artist can't actually win trying to play against these people. So you might as well play their game, which is maybe more the like meta narrative that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wes Anderson's working through with his own art. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good take on it. (laughs) Yeah. Each story had its, it was interesting because the overall structure had its framing device of the, the, the magazine, the French Dispatch, but each individual story also had its own little framing device. Um, you mentioned um, that there was the whole the, the lecture in Kansas mm-hmm. uh, in the first one. The second one is sort of the just the, the the retelling the diary of later on, and then the third one there's sort of that very like '60s '70s talk show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that for a movie that these are supposed to be articles in a magazine, each one also has its own different form of framing. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly the the meaning. It might be just the way, you know, we as an audience consumes these various creative outlets, you know, mm-hmm. whether we get it through like attending an art lecture or reading an article or listening or watching a top show on on tv i just thought it was a very interesting choice to not only break it down into articles but then break it down into these various things from that right yeah all of the ways the article has been repurposed to be used for content elsewhere 
yeah, that's, that might that might just be like what it is because each of those had its, you know, maybe each of those was after the closing of the French Dispatch. Maybe yeah. Then a continuation of that story. That's that was really the impression I got. Mm-hmm. Was that this is they were all kind of looking back on because the interview is even uh, with Jeffrey Wright's character is talking mm-hmm. about Bill yes. Murray's character in the past tense. You're right. You're right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. It could be sort of the and now that I'm going back to my original point, it could be like the continuing way that we engage with this this creative element. Mm-hmm. You know, each of them has gone their own path from the time of the French Dispatch, but they're still continuing to engage with what they did during that time. Maybe I don't know. No, oh, I like those I think, take. I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Tell us dollars on Letterboxd. <laughs> this is actually the point. <laughs> I'm I'm creeping toward four stars. Oh, yeah. I, you know, most Wes Anderson movies are like instant five stars for me. Mm. So it it felt weird to walk out of this movie and be kind of. Although I did kind of hate Isle of Dogs, so maybe you know, Wes and I aren't always on the same wavelength. Do we have anything else we want to say about the the first segment in particular? I mean, I think just to bring up like one part that I liked is just when the art, or I don't know, the local art collector, he kind of shows like, this guy's an artist and I'll show you why. Like, here's this image of a bird. He can actually draw it, but he doesn't want to draw it. He wants to draw like this abstract thing. And like, that's truly the art. I was just like, whoa, that hits. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the the phrasing on that where it's like, he could do it good, but he thinks this is better. Yes. It, and I think I might agree with him. Uh, mm. It was like simultaneously Adrian Brody's character doing a sales pitch to yeah. the other art people. So you're getting to see like mm-hmm. almost this like creativity on mm-hmm. the producer side that mm-hmm. he can't do the painting, but yeah. he can sell the painting. And like you do see, I feel like him especially you get to see a creative process at work yeah. in mm-hmm. what he's doing because he has to convince these old people that like, no, no, this is the wave of the future. You don't understand. He could paint a bird. Look, he did a bird. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And yeah, I think it's more of that exploration of like, what is creativity and how we can, I guess, explore it more. And yeah, we don't even have just the writers like doing their art or through an article, but also like their own subjects are exploring their own yeah, creativity this way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the, f- the first one definitely felt the most traditional Wes mm-hmm. Anderson. It felt very much like a, a typical Wes Anderson story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, very fun. And I, I, I think my favorite part of it was the, uh, the bribes to get into the, the prison <laughs> and just sort of that split screen. Just, yep. It just increases. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the in uh, the the uh, the frozen fight scene. Oh yeah. Because yeah. yeah, the whole thing ends in a prison riot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just love that the way that's shot. Just a pan across. You have somebody with a fire extinguisher, and it's just like felt coming out of the fire extinguisher. <laughs> and it's it's great. Um, wow. Yeah, there were some good moments that felt like oh, this is how this would be represented in a magazine, mm-hmm. like a still of the prison riot, yeah. the the animated sequences in mm-hmm. the the last story felt very much like, oh, we had an artist like draw portions of this story to present alongside the article. 
mm-hmm. it it felt like using the conceit of the magazine in a way that was effective. Yeah. Um, like that part worked for me mm-hmm. a lot. It was the not having time to process the individual stories that I didn't appreciate. Yeah. Intermissions. We need intermissions in movies again. <laughs> yeah. Just not, not like they have in a Turkey where they literally put it at the halfway mark of the movie, even if it's in the middle of a line oh. of dialogue. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's just, here's the, I was watching baby driver and suddenly like in the middle of a line of dialogue, screen goes dark, lights come on. I'm like, the hell happened? Wow. No, just intermission. <laughs> Very funny. I can time it better. Yeah. Yeah. So our second story, I think to me, per, I know both of you thought the first was your favorite. I'm going to say I differ in thinking the third is my favorite. Really? Okay. Um, but I thought the second might have been the weakest to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. So what do we have? What was the story of the second or the second part here? The the boys want to get in the girls' dormitory and they'll die on that hill if they have to. It's like a parody of student activism, which I get in the, you know, in the French culture of, you know, you took away our free cookies or whatever, so we're going to light the trash cans on fire. I can see making fun of that, and I think that's what he's going for, but it came out at such a weird time to be like, you know, kind of mocking the idea of activism in the street while also like being like, and also the cops are being total assholes about it, but the protesters are still stupid. Felt like I just couldn't figure out what angle he was trying to come from. And so I spend so much of that section just being like, wait, how am I supposed to feel about Timothy Chalamet? I know how I feel about him in general, that he's just like has weird proportions and bothers me. The care Cody. I just, I don't, I don't get him. He like just <laughs> I don't I don't mean to body shame Timothy Chalamet, a man who is apparently universally regarded as hot, but I don't I don't that's, get it. That's Paul Moadib you're talking about. <laughs> I thought I thought making him look like a you know, picking Timothy Chalamet for Paul was perfect because weird gangly space dude I'm on board for. Although I guess I should say in the, the spirit of our David Lynchian companion here, I should that the only Paul Moadib is from David Lynch's original dude. Nice. Yes. Who is that? <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, I was like, I can picture him, but. Yeah, I think with the second one, to me, I enjoy it just for the aesthetic, like trying to follow. I mean, it doesn't have like a ton of French new wave like elements to it, but a lot of the set pieces are the same. Like a Jean-Luc Godard film would have the same sort of cafe and the jukebox mm-hmm. and the music and the nonchalant attitude of a female like independent character it's like those elements are there there's not a lot of camera work per se you have the sort of playing around with like subtitles on subtitles off Mm -hmm. and like your brain is having to switch between the two but yeah i i agree even now that i've seen it twice it's still yeah i don't really get the point of yeah why they're so interested in this very serious life-threatening protest for something that seems like so minuscule. And I found it interesting that the chessboard scene, while it's kind of funny, I don't really get why the mayor would participate in it or why anyone would care and why they're like, okay, actually this is over because they took too long. Now we're going to like totally demolish them. Like it just didn't make any sense. It had like 
really high stakes for something that shouldn't have been high stakes. The reality of this section completely falls apart to me in a way that Wes Anderson always maintains this sort of heightened realism, but this one just kind of is way too far. And I think what I notice is this one, you mentioned the French New Wave, which was interesting because I found that this one was shot the most like as though it were a stage play. Mm-hmm. I, I found it. There were more static camera shots. There was even a moment where they go into a stage play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This one. Um, and I think at one point a character wheels away the front wall of the, the cafe, <laughs> which, you know, French New Wave is such a, like, a breaking away from that idea of film. Very as, dynamic, uh, yeah. Yeah, very dynamic, very, you know, not just we're focusing on actors doing a thing, we're moving the camera, we're going crazy. So that that's an interesting, like, juxtaposition of a French New Wave setting, mm-hmm. but filmed in a a very yeah, right. performance-oriented way. Yeah, and good on you for bringing up the play, because that's like another exploration of like a yeah. different medium of art. Again, like another retelling of a story inside of a story, inside yeah. of a story. <laughs> Which that play was was real fun. That, yeah. They, they wheel in that whole background set for one shot and then wheel it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so a little, I guess, comment about Timothy Chalamet. Like you're saying, he's very petite <laughs> and it feels wrong for <laughs> Lucinda Kremens to be, I don't know, to have this relationship with him. Even though I know he's an adult, he's a college student, whatever, he's of age. It still felt very predatory and weird to me in a way that I just could not get into. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then like, it's, it's leaned into when yeah, like my muscles. like explaining to Juliet that like, well, I'm a virgin. Oh, except for Mrs. Yeah, Crimmins. Yeah. It's like, oh, God. Ew. Yeah, it was It was not good for me. I did not like that. It was a, it was a strange one. Because yeah. That, that whole aspect wasn't particularly needed. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the, I mean, you got, I guess you have the, the dueling idea of these characters where she's she's dedicated her life to her writing, her mm-hmm. art, and she's sort of neglected her own personal happiness yeah you know she admits at one point she's sad and his character i guess is on a similar path where he's focused on you know the cause and his manifesto and his writing and i guess the part of the conclusion of the story is that he embraces love with thankfully an age-appropriate yes and and then is tragically killed at a young age yeah Sometimes a character says something in a movie that you're like, oh, this is being depicted as a negative thing. And I hate how much it resonates with me on a deep level. But when he hands his manifesto to her and she starts correcting things and he's like, whoa, 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 I wanted you to read it so that you would tell me how good it was. And I was like, ooh, I have done that yeah. many times where it's like, no, 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 I wasn't looking for destructive feedback here. I was just <laughs> looking for the praise of my genius. Yep, yeah. yep. <laughs> I hope he overcame it in his last whatever weeks of moments that he had, but yeah. Before he fell off of a radio tower and, uh, and drowned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this one really just depresses me for that. I really don't think he had any growth so much. Like, obviously, he made a change in his life. Doesn't mean he actually inwardly changed in a way that, like, long term, we don't know because it was cut short. And yeah, just like, tragic of like someone so young but i guess that's the whole point is that he becomes a symbol for whatever movement and all of that but 
yeah, it's on t shirts. Yeah, great commercialism, you know, uh, just yeah, it ultimately just depresses me every time. So, yeah, I, I guess more, most so in this one versus the others. I don't know, like, like you said, Cody, I don't know what it's trying to get across. You know, is it about the 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 corruption and loss of this sort of youthful rebellion and now he's on t-shirts is is it like once the you know once the person's dead the idea gets corrupted over time Mm. is that the idea (laughs) it's about uh, the recuperation of radical elements within a capitalist framework uh that's why he's put on t-shirts after he's killed okay Mm. who took out the radio tower that's the real question they knew that he was so committed to the cause he would climb up and they got rid of him (laughs) But they made All right, I like wondered. this section of the movie now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're writing conspiracy theories. It's what Wes wanted. <laughs> but yeah, it was... This one I, I noted... The use of miniatures was in, insane. There were so many... Like, all, so many of the sets were miniatures. Um, the whole radio tower was a great, mm-hmm. was a great miniature that they set up. Looked looked fantastic. I love the sets in this one and the, the sort of style of the, the barricade and all that. That was really fun. The sequence with the chess game was was very fun, like you said. Even though I it didn't I didn't understand it from like a actual logical standpoint. Yeah. But yeah, I think in terms of the overall three main ones, this was probably my least favorite. Yeah. I will say this was actually my second. And for me, the third one was not my favorite. It doesn't mean it was bad. I know I have to say my opinion here. But yeah, we can go into it. Go into why you liked it so much. All right. Are we done talking about the second one then? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So yes, the third one. The third one was about a a writer who's the um, the French Dispatch's, uh, for lack of a better term at the moment, food blogger. I guess food <laughs> critic is probably the way to put it. But he's reviewing a whole movement of food that's like police stakeout food. And the whole thing's very nonsensical. It's it's like this is the, the chef that makes the, the police food and that there's a whole artistry behind it. Um, and he's going to go and have a dinner and the whole dinner is waylaid by the police commissioner's son being kidnapped. And we go from this story that's solely about food into this this crime drama. But I think, and, and the crime drama is pretty fun. I think there's a, there's a really fun animated segment that I really enjoyed. But I think what really makes this one stand out to me and makes it my favorite is the, the moment at the very end. So the basic story is mm-hmm. that the, the hostage situation is broken by the chef has come and made this poison food. He has served it to everybody and served it himself because they didn't trust him. And he's managed to survive. But at the very end, there's a moment where Tom Hanks's character is saying, you know, I thought this was a you know, food story. What, what happened? And which is a very reasonable thing to say when the food story turns into a, a police drama. But there's a, a moment where Jeffrey Wright's character well, there was a thing that happened and it was too sad to put into the story. And that moment is so key to everything yeah. for me. It's where the the chef is talking and he says, you know, when I tasted that poison, I tasted something completely mm-hmm. new that I had never tasted before. It had, the poison had a taste. And then he's talking about, you know, I'm a, I'm a foreigner here. I'm a, in a new place and... 
I'm try you know I'm trying to find my place and uh, Jeffrey Wright says you know I'm I'm a foreigner here too and I'm also trying to find my place you know we're we're here because we're hoping that maybe somewhere else we can find that thing that was missing when we were at home mm-hmm. or when we were at the place we called home and I I thought that was such like that was such a beautiful wrapping up of the whole the whole thing yeah of these various stories that are inherently about people that have have gone somewhere or experienced something new mm-hmm. and either found their place found their passion as in the first case I, i'd say about everyone every one of these stories is about somebody finding their passion in a way and so that 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 whole wrap-up sequence and i found was so important to the entire story that i really liked it and i i, I think one of the funniest elements is tom hanks says that there, that's key. Jeffrey Wright says, I don't, I don't think it is. Wait, Bill Murray, right? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, he means Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. Sorry, Bill Murray. I'm saying Tom Hanks. Bill Murray. <laughs> it's okay. I was like, wait, Tom Hanks was in this movie? But I know, I, I had to search like, no, no, I know. Yeah. Old white guys. Old yeah, white yeah, guys. yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill Murray says, you know, that, that's key to the, the whole thing. Jeffrey Wright says, uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's important. But Bill Murray is like, no, it, it's important. And that's sort of... It wraps it all up in a nice bow for me. Where yeah. It's this this figure that really, truly, even though he didn't, he wasn't a creator on his own. He understood the creative intent. He understood, like, the artistic importance of these things. And he understood, in sort of a meta way, the important element of the entire movie. Yeah. I completely agree. That is the best way that it could have been wrapped up. And I think that is probably the saving grace of this story for me. The rest or like this part of the story, like mm-hmm. the rest of it, or I kind of zone out during when like the animation is beautiful, but to me, it's like, Oh, this is like, like I'm watching something animated. It's very pretty to look at, but it's like, to me, it felt like, Oh, we couldn't afford this chase scene. Let's make it animated. <laughs> and I don't know yeah. if that's what it was yeah. or not, but you know, it is there, but it doesn't mm, like capture me as much. But yeah, mm. like you're saying that those last lines, again, fitting in with the expatriate theme of like, where am I? How do I find a place or a way to belong in this place that I want to be? Um, I think it's very poignant, but um, yeah. I, what like the poison line meant to me was very dark. Yeah, I interpreted it as like, I want to taste that more or I'm sad I can't taste that again. And the sort of like consequence of that is like, if you do taste it again, you'll die, you know? So I don't know if that entered anyone else's mind, but that kind of hit me in my last viewing. Cody, I my... want to hear what you thought of it first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. What I thought of it. yeah. My thought was that when, when you find something that you're truly passionate about, whatever that thing is for you, eventually it, it comes to a point where it will kill you like that you're going to spend your life in pursuit of this thing. And so the only way for the chef to experience a totally new flavor at this point in his career is if he tastes something that is toxic. So I felt like it was kind of another angle on the creative process that we've been talking about this whole time. We're like, great artists hurt themselves in pursuit of their art, which is maybe not like the best message to put out. It's certainly a message. One that I think resonates with creative people, even if it's, you know, kids, you don't have to use uh, like lead paint to be a true artist. See, I I took it a little, I think I 
came out of it with a more positive angle. I, I think I, I came out of that line thinking the meaning was that there is always something new to experience, something something new to learn, something new to gain, even if it might come from the places you would never expect to try. I mean, who would expect to, who would, you know, volunteer, voluntarily taste poison? Mm-hmm. I I thought it was more the idea that there's always going to be something that you haven't tried out there. You don't necessarily know what it is yet. But there could be a negative aspect to it, given that in the context of the story is poison. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I think you both put it really well. But yeah, another, I like how Cody said it's another exploration of the creative side. So yeah, yeah, I think in general, I agree that my rating or like my perception of the film is going up with this discussion. So I, I, I did, I did officially, while Peter was talking, I did oh. officially pick up to four stars. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, like, I feel like ranting again. I got to go to Letterboxd. <laughs> Peter's on a tear. No, I think that uh, you do a good job of helping me see past my like superficial grievances against a movie and, and be like, okay, what were they trying to say here um, in a way that if I don't, instinctually enjoy a movie i'm less likely to think about what were they trying to do i'm more like fuck you for a movie i didn't enjoy <laughs> I, I, I don't think i got it as much on the first time i think like jamie said i kind of watched this movie originally and put it out of my mind and mm-hmm. maybe it's partly because i'm right fresh off of it but this time i really felt like i i got the idea of what i was going for more mm-hmm. Um, well, the thing I thought that would be fun to kind of wrap things up is to talk about our favorite Wes Anderson movies. Um, I think that we're all like kind of Wes Anderson fans. So, Peter, do you want to you want to tell us your your favorite Wes Anderson movie? Sure. So, I recently, and by recently, I mean a couple months ago, watched Bottle Rocket in in France, which was a great experience. Fun God damn it! He took my whole I story. Know. Oh, he stole no. my whole story. Did you guys go together? <laughs> we yeah, did. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Yeah, I saw the pictures. It looked not really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, but like, I think, be you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different elements that makes it my favorite. It's got the, the, the hometown feel. By hometown, I mean Dallas, the place I, yeah. it's definitely not my hometown, but I live in. <laughs> but it's, it's just fun seeing... Wes Anderson's style before it was perfected, before it became so ubiquitous and all-consuming, because the style's there. Like, the shots are there, the use of color's there, but it's not quite as dramatic and encompassing as it becomes. I think that Bottle Rocket was really successful, and it got him permission to do things a little more freely. I think that Bottle Rocket is kind of an example, even though it is rough in places, it's an example of him being really reined in by a studio and having a a good editor in the context of like the movie we were just talking about, not like actual editing, where like working with Polly Platt to produce this movie, there was a lot of, hey, you can't do do it this way. You, you have to do it this way for budget reasons, whatever it was, like you're untested. So we're going to do it in a more traditional way that I think produces Bottle Rocket's also my favorite uh, Wes Anderson movie. So yeah, I just think that it's a really cool marriage of talents. 
where she did a lot of the set and location scouting and stuff for the movie. I have not seen Bottle Rocket. I So that's an unfortunate one that I have in my wrapped criterion that I should watch, okay? So uh, I yeah. feel compelled to actually that's watch it now. Wrapped criterion movies. It's so fun. <laughs> Wes know. Anderson heist movie. It, <laughs> it, part of it is filmed in a Frank Lloyd Wright designed oh. home in Dallas. Oh, and wow. then okay. the, the climax of the movie was filmed in Deep Ellum. Oh my gosh! Uh, okay, did not even realize that. I, I'm really excited to watch it now. Yeah, because yeah. yes, like the Wilson brothers are from Fort Worth, right? Yeah, like Owen Wilson and Luke mm. and the other one. <laughs> yeah, I think Luke is correct. Okay, okay. Yes, Owen and Luke. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh. And Wes, Wes is from Katy, Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So interesting. Yeah, I should definitely watch that. But I would say I've seen. All right. I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox when I was in high school. Like someone was passing around like a whatever MP4 version of it. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I watched that. And then I remember it in college. My roommate had shown me The Life Aquatic, but it was like, I wasn't like, you know, I was watching more films and trying to expand my horizons, but I wasn't ready for it yet. Like I watched it and I was sort of like, eh, about it. So it's one I should revisit. Um, Is this before or after Mulholland Drive? Yeah, way before, way <laughs> before. So like, I really had a lot of catching up to do. Then I saw Grand Budapest Hotel, like after, like way after it had come out. And, you know, I think I saw it on my own copy. And The Royal Tenenbaums was one that I had watched along with Street City and French Dispatch. So. I think out of those, I really like the Royal Tenenbaums. And I think there's some problematic things maybe, or like, not problematic, but like, just kind of like some weird storylines that are sort of like, hmm, I don't know why. Yeah, it's an interesting way to go with that story. But I just like the exploration of family dynamics and the sort of weirdness that comes with it. Um, And also the whole uh, city setting that they explore. I also think there, I mean, there's like a very trigger inducing like scene in that, but to me, it was really powerful to see. And I think, yeah, it was eventually like turned into some character development. So it's kind of a, a tough watch, I would say, but I remember it was very effective to me at the time that I was watching it. So it's one that I should also revisit, but it's, yeah, it's probably out of that list. It's the first one that I would want to watch again because it's like, oh, I remember feeling some, like it was very, yeah, emotional. So yeah, it's something I'd like to watch again. Have either of you seen? Yeah, I have seen. I've seen Royal Tenenbaums, but it has been a few years for yeah. sure. Yeah, um, I have. I've returned to the Bottle Rocket well many times, uh, <laughs> and then I worked at Alamo Draft House when Grand Budapest came out, so oh, I went yeah. many, many times, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and worked it a lot, which is like you you experience the movie uh, mm-hmm. while running around the theater Cuddling, the... yeah, with your food <laughs> oh yeah that's the best that's the only way to watch a movie is while you're working it yeah i worked the the force awakens uh, mm. release and i can like close my eyes and still hear the new cantina song like it is <laughs> in my brain let's hear yeah. it cody uh, you don't want that you don't want me to try to sing in huttese that would be offensive to uh, the huts and <laughs> any other uh, sentient species. I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah. So is there anything coming up that you guys are looking forward to in uh, theaters? Oh, 
I'm not entirely sure when this episode will drop, but hopefully we won't date ourselves too badly. Obviously, the new Exorcist movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's gonna. I don't think that's gonna be very good. <laughs> two two demons, too furious. <laughs> no, there was actually a really cool movie. I I love horror movies, and there was a really cool one coming up. It's on my watch list. Um, it's a it's a possession movie called It Lives Inside. Mm. It is about like an Indian girl trying to fit in at school, and so there's sort of this aspect of like rejecting her culture, but there's also a mythological demon spirit that's attaching its, her, itself to her best friend. So it seems like it's going to be really good. It'll be nice to see like, you know, Indian American horror. Cause I think yeah. that's something that has not really been explored. Yeah. That sounds really cool. I have not heard of it yet, but I will keep an eye out for it. <laughs> The one that I thought of, uh, I don't know if it's like exactly the most anticipated or whatever, but it was the first one I could think of. And the only one I could think of right now is Challengers, a new Zendaya movie that's coming out with like the tennis players. I've only seen just like the one trailer, but I guess it seems like it could be pretty uh, drama intensive, but kind of, yeah, tennis. Luca. Yeah. Uh, you can pronounce his name better than I can, probably. Guadagnino. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I never, I never saw his new Suspiria. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of remakes like that, though. But yeah, yeah, it's hard when the original Suspiria. Is yeah, the best movies ever. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I you? am. I'm excited for Bottoms. Uh, yeah. It is a like raunchy comedy of like teenage girls starting a fight club at their high school. It's It's very bro adjacent. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. No, it's uh, it's inverting the tropes because it's girls fighting. Right. Yeah. It's it's Ayo Edebiri from The Bear. um, Oh, okay. And Rachel Sennett. And apparently they had a like really short lived series on Comedy Central together. Mm. Um, And then they got cast in this together, I guess, on like the strength of that relationship in the in the shorts. Um, But it looks like a lot of fun. So I'm excited for it. It got its uh, draft house recommends status uh, recently ahead of the release. So I think it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That one looks good. I want to see that director Emma Seligman's other film, which is Shiva Baby, which is like a like a, a, I think it's about a bisexual Jewish woman. And so it's like, a, I, I'm always, a, I love Jewish comedy. So I'm, I'll have to check that one out. Let me, let me look at the description of that one. Uh, the film stars Rachel Sennett as Danielle, a directionless, directionless young bisexual Jewish woman who attends a Shiva, which if you don't know, a Shiva is like a Jewish funeral, essentially. Uh, Joel and Debbie attends a Shiva with her parents, Joel and Debbie. Other attendees include her successful ex-girlfriend, Maya, and her sugar daddy, Max, with his wife, Kim, and their screaming baby. I don't even know. I lost track of who was who. That's awesome. (laughs) So it seems like it's just like a one-day comedy type thing. Family dynamics, too, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like, how awkward can we make this one funeral? Oh, I love a good cringe comedy. Yep, yep. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I think that brings us to our final segment. Peter, did you watch your Letterboxd roulette selection? 
I watched one of them. I forgot what one of them was, but I did finally go and watch the first episode of I, Claudius. Nice. The, uh, the British miniseries from the, from 1976. I, Claudius was really good. It was really well acted. It was also very much like watching a stage performance on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, very, it's, the production quality is terrible. It's, it's absolutely atrocious. It, it is like watching a bunch of actors on a stage and that's all they have. But it's really carried by these amazing British actors just, you know, doing what they do best. British stage actors kicking ass. You know who's in the show? is uh, He hasn't showed up yet, but Patrick Stewart's in the show. Oh, oh fun. So I'm, I'm hoping I, I'm going to continue to watch it maybe a little slowly because it's, it's, it's certainly it's not a quick watch. It's, mm-hmm. But it is very good. Nice. Well, yeah, so last time we rolled, I got The Last Valley, one of the very few cinematic representations of the 30 Years' War. And it was fun. It was Michael Caine and Omar Sharif. Um, and you might guess from Omar Sharif's name that like he's, a, he's an Egyptian actor. And I like went into the movie expecting there was going to be some explanation for why this guy is like running around Germany during the 30 years war. Zero explanation. He's just presented as like a German guy. They just cast him. So it was just like, oh, okay. So there's not going to be any, you know, this Egyptian guy is not going to be explained at all. But the movie was, it was fun. It needed like 30 minutes cut out of it. Like it, it was adapted from a novel and it felt like a very faithful adaptation of a not very good novel where it was just like, okay, well, we're getting the action of every single page and we're not resequencing events to make them like work in a movie. It's just going to have six endings because everybody needs to have an ending. <laughs> so it, it dragged on, but it was, it was fun. It's from 1971. It was probably made to be put on TV. Like it did yeah. not feel like it didn't make any money. Yeah. How does, oh, sorry. You go ahead. I was just wondering, how does the roulette work? What are you guys picking from? <laughs> like uh, random? <laughs> So oh. it's our letterboxed watch list, which we'll, we'll do it in a sec. Oh, we'll get okay. to see the whole process. But uh, Cody, I was going to say, if Omar Sharif could play opposite opposite of Alec Guinness uh, as an Arab, um, he can play a German. <laughs> uh, yeah, and this was opposite Michael Caine uh, in yeah. this one. But yeah, it was, it was just like, I don't know, because usually it's like a weirdly racist thing where they're just like, yeah, we'll just have this guy. He can be vaguely ethnic. We'll have him be any character. And this was just like, there just wasn't any explanation for it. And I kept expecting one. But yeah, so the way that Letterboxd Roulette works, and this is a good reminder for anyone listening, is that we pull up our watch list. Peter, I hope you've bulked up your watch list. I have. It's it's no longer just crap. (laughs) Mine is like insanely long, so... I want to oh, see yeah, how you, you guys should, do you this. Should, you should join us for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should do it too. Yeah. So what you do is you pull up your watch list and there is a sort by option. And then there is a shuffle selection. Okay. And then we just watch whatever comes up to the top. So I will go ahead and shuffle. And I pulled up uh, what I believe is a romantic comedy uh, called Notting Hill starring... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Julia Roberts, uh, let's see, the description is, William Thacker is a London bookstore owner whose humdrum existence is thrown into romantic turmoil when famous American actress Anna Scott appears in his shop. A chance encounter over spilled orange juice leads to a kiss that blossoms into a (laughs) full-blown affair. 
As the average bloke and glamorous movie star draw closer and closer together, they struggle to reconcile their radically different lifestyles in the name of love. And it is Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. I'm going to have a great time with this. This is the second uh, like poorly rated rom-com that I have pulled in the shuffle because I have a bunch of questionable choices in my watch list. I, I still need to add more. It's very, my mine heavily leans to, but okay, let's go ahead. I'll do mine. Shuffle. Oh, my top one is actually the 1927 Napoleon. Mm. Oh, um, very cultured. Yeah, that's well. <laughs> trust me, that the, you went the back alter- and cleaned up the, al- the list. The alternatives of what this could have landed on are, are not good. Let's read us number two so that okay, we okay. give an idea of what well, it could have been. Let's see. Uh, oh, actually, number two is pretty good too. Number two is in animated film by a, a, Hungar- a Hungarian director called oh. The Tragedy of Man. Oh, that's cool. It's, yeah, I highly recommend watching the trailer of it. It's been on my list for a very long time. <laughs> it's a adaptation of the play, but in all these different styles, and it, it looks really cool. So yeah, my first two were actually pretty safe. Now my third, Cody, is called Dr. Mordred. <laughs> Man has ancient enemies. An unspeakable evil has come into our dimension and wants to rule over Earth. And only a mysterious sorcerer known as Dr. Mordred can stop him. Wow. So it's off-brand uh, Dr. Strange, I guess. Uh, Peter, I wonder if you have looked at the runtime of the 1927. Oh, oh it's, it's long. It's 333 <laughs> minutes. I got to watch oh, I, Claudius. Oh, my God. I got to watch I, you Claudius. Should... I got to watch Napoleon. You got to quit adding six to eight hour historical (laughs) epics to your watch list. Maybe I'll just do Tragedy of Man, which is still 166 minutes. That sounds awesome. Like, yeah, I would be down to watch that one. (laughs) It's uh, it seems super cool. Watch after you get off this call, watch the trailer. Okay. Did you did you shuffle? Do you want to? I did. Yeah, I got one. It was never, rarely, sometimes, always, which was quite political. It was from 2020, and it has to do with like a pair of teenage girls in rural Pennsylvania travel to New York City to seek out medical help after an unintended pregnancy. So it is pretty heavy and yeah, interesting around this time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing about that when it came out i'm adding it to my watch list so Mm -hmm. one day i'll roll it yeah (laughs) you have to get through all your romantic uh, comedies first yeah Yeah, i went through a weird spell of adding a bunch of them Uh, part of it was the you must remember this series they've done the like first half of sex in the 90s that I added a bunch of movies from that to my watch list, <laughs> including Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. But also, like, I ended up with a bunch of goofy rom-coms in my <laughs> watch list. It's a blind well, spot. Yeah. I think it's good. Yeah. Thank you, guys, by the way. Yeah, thanks so great. much for jumping on with us. I was scared we wouldn't make an hour, but here we are, way over. <laughs> we yeah. did it. And we'll, we'll edit a little bit. Uh, yeah. We'll make everybody sound uh, real smart. Yeah. We're leaving this in though. Right here. Okay, yeah. I actually what I what I do in the editing process is I pull out anything smart Peter says and then I re-record myself saying Oh, that's a good idea. I've trained an AI voice model so that I can just have Peter team me up with great questions to mm-hmm. steal his thoughts. I don't even think Peter's real. He's just some AI thing. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, well be sure yeah, to purchase I, your Peter it. NFT on our <laughs> website. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Film Bros Anonymous. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review, five stars, if you got them for us. That just helps more people find out about the show. And you can follow Peter and I on Letterboxd. We'll have links in the show notes for that. All right, we'll see you next week.